this is, as you say, really difficult. And the reason it's so difficult, uh, sort of philosophically, is that the values on each side of this equation are in different currencies, so to speak, right? So on 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 the one hand, you have the lives of the animals that you're going to kill. On the other hand, you have the lives of the animals that they would have eaten, but you also have the species, which is this sort of abstract category. So you have biodiversity, the value of biodiversity, put up against the sort of welfare and suffering of individual sentient creatures. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, a freelance journalist and book author. And I, like many of you, love animals. It's hard not to, right? I want to conserve them, to save animals and the last wild places they live in from our rapacious grasp. But what does that mean? What does it mean to save an animal? How should you do it? Should you actually do it at all? These are questions of science, yes, but they are also questions of ethics. And that's why we need Emma Maris, a journalist whose work has appeared in The Atlantic, The New York Times, National Geographic, Wired, and many other outlets with very fancy familiar names. She is the author of the book Rambunctious Garden and the author of a new book, Wild Souls, Freedom and Flourishing in the Non-Human World. Emma, thank you so much for being here with us. It's great to be here. I wanted to start with a simple question that is not actually simple, <laughs> because one of the first questions you kind of tackle in the book is the concept of wild animals. What is wild? What is wildness to us? Yeah, as you say, this is not a simple question, although it might seem so at first. Um, I got really interested in this question in, in the context of wolves and wolf reintroduction in, in uh, the American West. Because a lot of people were interested in bringing wolves back because they felt that they would increase the wildness of the area that they're living in, because they themselves are wild and somehow kind of also confer wildness onto the landscapes they live in. But more so than, than, than other reintroductions, the wolf reintroduction was incredibly carefully managed. And the animals themselves are still very carefully managed. And many of them have collars and are tracked, and, and, and their behavior is somewhat, uh, somewhat shaped by humans. So if they start eating livestock, we have all of these ways to try to change that behavior and, and scare them off or kind of train them not to go after livestock. So it really sort of made, start, started to make me wonder about uh, what counts as wild. So if you've got a wolf that's got a collar on and, and a name and it has its DNA on file with the state, and it's being told where it can, where it can go and where it can't go, and what it can eat and what it can't eat. Like, is that really a wild animal? Uh, it sounds pretty controlled. So it made me realize that there were different senses of the word wild that were in play, and that in some weird cases, we were willing to um, restrict the autonomy of individual animals in order to preserve their wildness which seems totally bonkers, but uh, happens more than you might think. So as I work through this in the book, I kind of come to a place where I decide that this definition of wild as being completely uninfluenced by humans is probably a, not a workable definition because everything is at this point is influenced by humans. All animals are influenced by humans, even if they are quote unquote wild animals. 
So I settle on a definition that's much more about the individual autonomy of individual animals. So my definition of a wild animal is an animal that decides what it's going to have for breakfast that morning. And that, uh, I think, is a workable definition that we can that we can actually work with. I would say by that definition, I think my cats count as wild because they will often tell me that, no, they are not having that for breakfast this morning. Thank you. They would like me to see if serve them something else. <laughs> yes. Well, that's interesting because I talk a little bit in the book about how our cats our cat pet cats are probably the, the sort of quote unquote wildest of the of our domestic animals that they're not very changed from their ancestors and that probably we have adapted to them more than they have adapted to us and so with this idea of wild there's this idea of choice um and you also take on kind of the concept of nature and this is really where you get into the moral judgments around these terms because people do see nature and things that are natural as good. If they did not, Whole Foods would not have a income stream, <laughs> right? They right. see nature and wildness as good. And nature is better, even if it's like some sort of natural plastic. <laughs> it's still It's still better somehow. But you noted in the book, after many years, I have come to see the concepts of wilderness and nature as not just unscientific, but damaging. And I was wondering if you could expand on that. What do you mean by unscientific and how are these terms harmful? Right. So let's start with the unscientific. So this notion that, um, you know, people define natural and wild in different ways. And, and I think that many people would say, well, it's more of a spectrum, right? So they might agree with me when I say, look, because of, of big changes like, you know, extinctions thousands of years ago and climate change happening now, there's probably no part of the planet that's not influenced by humanity to some degree. So, you know, if you're a total purist and you say that it must, in order for something to count as natural, it has to be completely untouched by humans, you're probably out of luck. There's probably no nature left. And that was actually what Bill McKibben has argued all those years ago back in the 80s in his book, The End of Nature. Um, so I think most people have moved to a more, um, you know, a, a definition that's more on a spectrum of influence by humans. But it really still sticks with this idea that the less influenced by humans something is, the more natural it is, and then therefore the more good it is. Um, the problem with this is that it, 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 it rests on this idea that humans are somehow not part of nature, um, that, that the human species is different from all other species in some way, that it's on the other side of some actual line, bright line that separates nature from not nature, but just humans, no other species are on the other side of this line. And this is just, this is not a scientific statement. This is a uh, a statement of values, a statement of cultural categories. Um, but we are just animals that evolved from pr uh, our primate ancestors, just like gorillas and chimpanzees are animals that that evolved from primate ancestors. There's nothing biologically unique about us. Uh, we have different cognitive capacities than other animals, but there's no magical transformation that makes us not part of nature. So it's just not really scientific. Um, and the reason that I think it's damaging is because, first of all, it makes us feel like we don't deserve to have a relationship with any other species that we as 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 something that's 
that's not just not part of nature, but that is actively destroying of nature by our mere presence, it makes us feel like just just any interaction with other species is always bad. Um, and, and this can kind of play out in a number of ways from um, ex- kind of like overdone injunctions to stay on the trail and, and leave no trace in places where it's actually not necessary to be quite so. I mean, there are places where it's, where it's necessary to be extremely stay on the traily, you know, overpopulated national parks and whatnot. But I mean, there's plenty of, of public land, especially in the West where it's perfectly fine to go and cut down a Christmas tree with as long as you have a permit. But there are many people who find that notion uh, just abhorrent that you shouldn't allow yourself to even touch uh, nature because your mere touch will somehow defile it. Um, So that's really sad outcome, but there are more pernicious outcomes still, such as when the notion that certain lands were wildernesses or natural when, when, when white colonists first arrived kind of become an argument for um, erasing the environmental histories and the political histories of indigenous people who were here actively shaping landscapes before that moment of colonization. And it becomes, in some cases, like in Australia, actually part of the legal case um, for just seizing these lands and taking lands away from native people, from indigenous people. So, there's lots of ways that it shows up in our culture, and I don't think any of them are really that good. Um, I think that they just they cause an estrangement of between humans and nature that is harmful. Uh, they cause a sense of shame that's overblown. I mean, yes, we've done bad things to uh, to nature, but the but we can also do good things to nature, and they've been part of this kind of ongoing project of colonization. So. I think it's time to retire these this sort of overarching concept of natural being good. I think it's done. And one of the things you mentioned in the book that really struck me is that these ideas are har- they're harmful in those obvious overt and very harmful ways, but they're also harmful in that they limit our imaginations. They limit our idea of solutions. And I was wondering if you could talk about the limitations that the idea of nature and wilderness being good, the limitations that places on our imaginations of our relationship with nature. Sure. So for a lot of Western conservation's history, the major techniques that it has employed have been species-focused conservation involving trying to save individual iconic large species from extinction by stopping shooting them or by captive breeding them. Um, And then, of course, protected areas. Protected areas were the foundational idea behind conservation biology in many ways. And and so this kind of model that, that the way you save nature is by kicking all the humans out of it and putting a fence around it and saying, this is forbidden, you can't do anything in this space. Um, has become, has been the dominant model in Western conservation for a long time. And it's, it's one tool, and it is definitely a tool that can be really helpful in certain situations. There are certain species, certain habitats, where we're really reducing what's, what sort of humans are doing in that space is a great strategy. But it has really limited uh, conservation's ability to think about conservation approaches that involve humans and, and other species sharing space at all, (laughs) you know? So, um, it's been, it's been 
a kind of a late, very late blooming for, for conservation in urban areas or for on-farm uh, projects or for coexistence, um, having pollinator corridors in between rows of crops or having using uh, predatory owls to do your crop, you know, pest control on the farm and uh, these sort of solutions where humans and other species are all in the mix together. Um, so, and I think that, you know, we're seeing a lot more of that now and I'm really grateful for that. I'm really excited to see that. Uh, but we still see kind of echoes of the older way of thinking. So, for example, I am a totally into this idea of half Earth that E.O. Wilson put together, this notion that we should protect half of the planet. But I think that uh, Dr. Wilson and I would probably cash out that half a little differently. In his book, he seems to suggest that that whole half would be off limits to all humans, including indigenous people. It would essentially be uh, un unpeopled and you could only go in there as a sort of a recreationalist with a backpack and uh you know a permit or something like that and i think that this is just untenable on the planet with as many people as we have i think having a vast network of indigenous protected areas that are inhabited by people and managed by people and having those as a part of a, a network of of areas that add up to half is totally doable so you know, I think that th those are just some examples of how our imagination, it, it, we just, it took so much longer to come up with some of these ideas than it needed to, because we didn't know how to imagine a good relationship with other species. Yeah, that actually really became clear to me when you, when you talk about how we think of nature and wildness and wilderness as good, and that means that humans are bad. And that really sets us up very easily for the concept of human-wildlife conflict. But right. it does not set us up for human-wildlife coexistence. It assumes yes. that we are at war, always. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. And, you know, I mean, obviously, there are some real conflicts you know when when if i'm a cattle rancher and i have a predator that is eating my livestock like that's a legit conflict but you know the the res resolution of that conflict doesn't have to be that either i go or the predators go there are ways to resolve that conflict where in fact we both get to stay but we manage to kind of tweak the system such that the predator is no longer eating my cattle um so that kind of coexistence those kind of coexistence approaches are much easier to conceptualize and get your brain around and to get political support for if there's a pre-existing understanding that it's possible for humans to be part of a system in a good way. And so one of the ways that you kind of want to approach this idea of humans as part of the system um, is through the concepts of ethical obligations. Um, and you note in the book that you want to understand ethical obligations to non-human kin, and that will help kind of improve the way we make decisions about how and whether we interfere, interact with um, animals in a given place. Um, but one of the things you noted that I find to be amusingly true is that philosophy is a lot more about organizing our ways of thinking than it is about providing actual practical advice. <laughs> Which is, yeah, as they so. say, in the good place, why everyone hates moral philosophers. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk about how 
understanding ethical obligations could actually practically inform our decision making? So I think the sort of wave of change that I have been surfing for most of my career as a writer is this shift from looking at our obligations to the natural world as being to undo what humans have done to it and go back to the better Edenic past towards a model where, in fact, we're realizing that you can't go back and that a lot of times our Edens were human created. We just didn't notice it. Or we, quote unquote, the Western Western scientists didn't notice it. So now we're trying to figure out how to kind of conserve nature or save the planet, you know, in in a way where we're we're having to look forward and figure out what we want things to look like in the future without necessarily replicating the past. I mean, certainly in many cases, the past is going to be a guide for for kind of the possibilities that we might be looking at. But it's not like environmental history is not useful in this endeavor. It's extremely useful. Um, We're not just kind of unthinkingly trying to replicate the past. Um, What we're trying to do is figure out how to go forward. And I think that that requires a more complicated ethical toolbox. Because if you're just trying to go back, it's just a, a sort of a question of how can we make this place look as much as like it did in 1491 or 1850 or 1730 or whatever as possible. And it becomes a real practical question. But if we're trying to manage towards some sort of good future condition, now we have to decide what that looks like. And now that means we have to figure out what is good. What is a good future condition? So now we need to have some ethical tools to help us figure out what is the good in the non-human world and how do we make that happen? Yeah. And, you know, many people uh, think of ethics and they immediately think of white men with beards. Uh, Some of those white men are wearing togas. Some of them are wearing tweed. Um, But as you note, future ethical treatment of our ecosystems may actually really depend on people who don't look like white dudes with beards you know, historically oppressed people. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how the views of indigenous groups um, differ from the Western ethical views that most of us have been brought up with and what that could mean for environmental ethics. So let's start with a very important caveat, which is that obviously there's no one single indigenous view of the natural world, right? Right. Like there are gazillions of different indigenous cultures and they all have their own unique take on what the human role in the cosmos is and what the human role in the sort of day-to-day world is. Um, Having said that, it is less typical for indigenous cultures to have this binary between humans and other species as it is for Western cultures to have that binary. So in many of the cultures that I interacted with and researched and talked about in the book, you just don't start with humans over here on one side and everybody else, all other plants and animals on the other side. And even just that lack of that kind of human nature duality as a framework changes a lot of these questions right from the get go. Um, So for example, what do you owe animals becomes a question, you know, what do humans owe these, these, these lesser creatures, you end up with a question that is much more along the lines of, what do I owe uh, th- this particular 
deer? And what does this particular deer owe me? And what does this jaguar owe me? And what do I owe it? And how can we work together? What kind of deals can we make? What kind of transactions can we uh, set up here so that we can all flourish? How can we all coexist in this place together? So you end up with a much more specific moral uh, lens in many cases where you're looking at each case separately rather than coming up with these sweeping rules. And second of all, you are often not premising your ethics on the notion that humans are somehow fundamentally different than other animals. Yeah, and I wanted to follow up on that because most of us were raised with this idea of human exceptionalism, that we are above or somehow very different from animals in some way. Why do we think that? And how does that permeate our ethical thinking about non-human animals? You can see this human exceptional. Well, why, first of all, why do we think that? Well, I think in a, in, in a lot of Western cultures, there is a um, a relationship between that kind of idea and and Christian thinking, um, sort of biblical stuff about dominion over the you know plants and animals in Genesis and so on. Um, it's also just I think uh, you know I it is the case that many cultures have a mental division between the human um, human dominated space of sort of like the household or the village. And the space where humans are not uh, kind of as in control, the sort of forests or the, or the, you know, the out there. So I think that as soon as you start clustering together and trying to defend your space from predators and trying to make some sort of uh, cleared area that's, that's, that's a little bit more human dominated, you can come up with these categories in your head. So it's not just always Western cultures that have some sort of notion of, of a more human space and a less human space. Um, but I also think that the role of, of sort of Christian thinking is pretty strong there. And then how does it show up? I mean, it shows up in lots of interesting ways. It, it can show up in kind of unpleasant ways, like people using other animals merely as tools in a way that can read as cruel to us. You know, I think that in, in previous generations, people, I mean, in for example, in the sort of animal cruelty, the notion that we should be not being cruel to animals, a lot of that was came out of how people used to treat their horses in Europe in 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 the old days when horses were kind of commonly used beasts of burden in everybody's everyday life, um, and and in fact, Kant himself was mostly objected to people beating their horses because he was worried that it would make them more likely to beat their wives. He didn't think that uh, beating horses was necessarily bad by, on its, by, by itself. It was just that it could make you more likely to be mean to humans who were the only things that had moral, moral value. Um, but then it also shows up in, in ways that you might not think of on its face. So I talk a little bit in the book about hunting and and I, in, when I get into that discussion, I talk a little bit about the the some people who are very passionately convinced that we should all be vegans, um, and and some t- and obviously their concern is they want us to be more ethical. They want us to be kinder to the non-human world, um, and so they're they're 
their ideas are coming from a place of like love and caring. But at the same time, they can be the kind of, in some ways, divorced from the natural world in a way, because there's a sense in which they want their lives to be completely non-ecological. They don't want to have any impact on other species. They want to somehow be able to live their lives without causing any harm or suffering to other creatures, which is pretty much impossible, even if you don't eat meat, uh, even if you don't eat, you know, even if you keep to a vegan diet, there's still ways in which you, the production of your food is going to impact other species. Um, so there's a, there's a sense where in some cases we can see this emerge as us, as, as people trying to not be part of nature for good reasons, for sort of motivated by love, but still have exemplifying this kind of divorcing uh, humans from the rest of nature. Does that make sense? <laughs> I'm trying to explain that in a in a careful way. No, it it definitely does. Um, and one of the things I appreciate about your book is that it kind of takes us through the evolving of ideas of ethics and how people start to think about their responsibilities toward animals, toward non-human animals. Um, and so, for example, you know, it, you, you can't write any book involving philosophy without talking about Descartes. Um, Descartes assumed that animals could not really reason. Um, Kant, as you mentioned, described animals as a means to an end and didn't and not having kind of moral agency. The end of animals was man. Um, but then, of course, we get to Bentham, who was the first to ask not if animals could reason, but if they could suffer. Um, and then we get to Peter Singer, who says every animal life is worth as much as a human one. And Tom Regan, who talks about the respectful treatment of every animal. And then I was very pleased to see the work of Lori Gruen, who adds that we have this entangled empathy with animals, that we feel empathy for their suffering, and that we might feel different amounts of empathy in different situations for different animals. And all of these are different ways of looking at ourselves in relation to the world around us. And I was wondering, which one wins? Is there a form of environmental ethics that you feel might best fit or inform the decisions that we make every day and the decisions that we make about conservation in particular? So first I'll say that that line that you trace through sort of philosophical thought, Western philosophical thought is, yeah, I broadly uh, definitely follow that same line. Although I do mention as I go that even in the sort of pre Bentham era, there were there were indications that people understood that animals could feel pain and that certain people always felt that it was a bad idea to be wantonly cruel to animals that it hasn't been quite as simple as that as that progression suggests, you know, there's, even within Western culture, there have been these, these kind of countercurrents, um, people who even as far back as St. Francis, who were seeing animals in a different way. Right. Hashtag um, not all philosophers. Yes, right. Exactly. Um, and even Descartes, I think, has gotten a little bit of a bad rap about his his view of animals. I, I, I kind of go, I, I give him a little bit of a, a more nuanced treatment than than in the book. Um, but then the question becomes, yeah, like which of these philosophers gives us the best framework for dealing with 
animals in the 21st century in a world where they're all living within a kind of a humanized construct, right? And and a, a real question for me throughout the book was how do you reconcile the tensions between species conservation and and kind of respecting the welfare of individual animals, right? So especially when conservation sometimes involves killing animals. So I think what's interesting too is, and I it kind of didn't really realize this until just now when you you walked us through that is as the earlier philosophers are all guys and then the later philosophers start to be dominated by women. I also talk about the work of Martha Nussbaum and Claire Palmer and Valerie Plumwood. And, and I think it's probably the one that speaks to me the most is that last one, Val Plumwood, who's a Australian philosopher. Um, And she has a kind of a very ecological approach to, to understanding, uh, our obligations to each other. It's what's tricky. What's ultimately the trickiest part of this for me is that caring for individuals is all about looking at individuals as the center of concern and trying to, and trying to make the individual feel good and not feel pain and be happy. But ecologies are not really about individuals. They're about the cycling of energy and of matter between all of these individuals over time in this complex flow. And if you love the flow, but you also love the individuals, you are sort of stuck in a bind because it's very difficult to, to, to do both at once, to try to, to care for all of the individuals, but also care for the flow. That's tricky. I don't think I have a perfect answer to that. I don't think anybody does. I don't think you can you can fit, you can square that circle without having some sort of more, I don't know, mystical consciousness, honestly. It's, it's hard to do. Well, and it also, I think, is not just hard, it's kind of, it's kind of psychologically difficult for us. Um, You know, because as, um, as Gruen points out, we have this entangled empathy with animals, but we don't have entangled empathy with ecosystems. You know, we don't have empathy for flow. We have empathy for that creature suffering over there because that is what we can see. Um, so I yeah. think that's another challenge is that we see individuals and not an ecosystem. Yeah, that's true. I'm not, I'm, I'm thinking about that. Is that true? Can, is it impossible to have empathy for the flow? Maybe empathy isn't the right word, but it is certainly possible to value the flow. And to kind of um, experience it in a very, in a very sort of emotional way, right? Like when you're out in the woods or the desert or any ecosystem, and you really start to understand that ecosystem and see how the parts are related and feel how they're related and spend time there. And, um, uh, and there's a desire to kind of enter into that flow. You know, just recently, I was backpacking up in the Cascades by myself and I was getting just hammered by mosquitoes. And I kept telling myself like, it's okay, Emma, like you're just entering into this ecosystem. Like you're just becoming part of the flow here. Um, it's okay. Like you, this is actually good. This is like, you want to be part of this mountain. Now you're part of this mountain because you're in the food, you're in the food web. Congratulations. Um, I do think that for people who love nature, there is a way in which you, you can fall in love with the flow as well as the individuals. 
And one of the things that I think is is also difficult about this is what what does it mean to want to protect the flow? Because a bunch of these ethical philosophers have said, you know, they, they tend to focus a lot on the obligations that we have to our pets and our domestic animals. Um, but when it comes to wild animals, our main obligation is to leave them alone and protect their habitat and then don't touch it. And right. as you point out, that does not fly. Not anymore. Yeah, definitely. They're all living inside this world that we have created. And in a lot of cases, you know, individual animals might be suffering because of climate change, because of land conversion, because of pollution, because of introduced species that we brought that humans brought there. So the idea of letting nature take its course is like not it's not happening. Like there is no nature to let it to like, you know, for for us to hand things over to. We're nature. <laughs> so if, you know, deciding not to intervene in one of these situations where um, animals are suffering because of a situation we've caused is is also an active choice. It's not just the default anymore, I don't think. Um, so, yeah, that is that is the ethical conundrum that kind of sparks off the book. Like, what are our obligations to these, quote unquote, wild animals if they are all living in our world? Um, and I think it's really hard to tell because on the one hand, you want to help them. On the other hand, you want to respect their autonomy and make sure that they are able to make their own choices and then we're not in there f- messing with their lives in a, in a disruptive way. So balancing that is really tough. And then the second thing that's tough is that once you get into, into these, you know, these animals that are not our direct pets or direct domesticates, they're in this food web of relationships where they're eating each other. And that involves pain and suffering. And so how are we supposed to intervene in a way that's helpful and good when their lives, when all of these ecosystems are constructed out of blood and death? What, what on earth are we to do? I think it's very difficult. I actually, when you use the phrase, let nature take its course, I realized I have never heard anyone use the phrase, let nature take its course in a way that ended up with something being happy. (laughs) <laughs> that's right let nature take its course is always a euphemism for like just let that thing die it's it's painfully. like the farm upstate of euphemisms <laughs> yes yes um yeah so throughout the book you actually kind of take us on a tour of different ethical conundrums um that we or that conservationists and scientists are confronting in the world right now. And one of them is the issue of genetic integrity. And I wondered if you could kind of talk about what that is and why we care about it so much. So, you know, because of the the Western notion of humans as outside of nature, we tend to have, we've built this whole kind of cult of purity around our environmentalism, that, that things are only good if they're untainted by this polluting force of humanity. Um, And so it's not just changes in ecosystems, things that are moved outside of their native range are bad. That's, that's, that's an all, you know, things that have any ecosystem changes are bad, but also changes to 
the genetic makeup of other species that were caused by humans are considered to be bad. So if we have bison and, and somebody crossed them with cattle back in the 1800s, um, those, those bison aren't as valuable to us as a pure bison, which is not tainted with the domesticated cattle genes. So there's a lot of um, talk in the conservation literature about genetic integrity, um, which baffled me to some degree because the genome is not a thing. It's not like a bridge, right? Like a bridge can have integrity and has cracks. You're like, uh Oh, and you get off the bridge because it might fall down. But a genome is, um, is, is by its very nature, a changing thing. It, it changes every generation. There's always it, evolution doesn't work unless there's change. Like change is, is the engine of, of creating diversity. So the idea that change must be stopped uh, is, is kind of philosophically makes no sense to me. Um, but it is very much the case that hybridization events are often considered bad unless proven otherwise. Um, genetic changes are looked on, looked upon suspiciously. And that if you Google the phrase genetic integrity in, in this, in, in the, you know, some kind of database of conservation literature, you're going to get a lot of hits. This is a popular concept. Yeah. And I, it's fascinating why why we do this because of course you know scientists love evolution right like <laughs> evolution is cool evolution is true um, why why do we care so much about not causing evolution because we hate uh, it's a misanthropic the misanthropic humans are not part of nature that's at the center of western environmentalism so if you know, and it, it, it plays out in a really bizarre way. So, like, if you have a plant and it evolves over time to be a different color, then that's great. But if you find out that it evolved to be a different color because it crossed with a garden plant, then that's, that's bad. And you now need to kill all of those plants. The, what I find interesting is the is if, let's say, it, it evolved to be a different color because it, it was dealing with climate change and the pigments in the other color were more stable in a hotter environment. Well, now that's considered good in some ways. It has evolved to deal with you know, a human-caused pressure. In a way, that's just as much a human-caused genetic change as if we were breeding it in a greenhouse. But because it did it on its own in response to human-caused changes, it's considered an acceptable genetic change. Whereas if we caused it by breeding or bringing in a relative species that it would hybridize with, then it's considered not to be acceptable. So it gets to, you get into these very fine distinctions, which um, is but also fascinating to me um, because of one yes. of the uh, one of the examples that you talk about in the book is the hybridization of wolves and dogs, and right. wolves and dogs have a choice with whom they mate, and sometimes they mate with each other, and right. to us that is unacceptable. Yeah, and I think particularly unacceptable because wolves are like the wildest of the wild and dogs are, you know, man's best friend. They're like the symbol of domestication. So when those two animals decide to mate with each other, our brains just break and we don't like it. Um, and so uh, I talk about in the book about a case where wild wolves chose to mate with a dog and the state intervened and ended that pregnancy because 
the offspring were going to be these hybrids in neither category. It was going to be a bureaucratic nightmare and it was going to be considered a polluting of the, of the kind of the integrity of the wolf genome. So the wolf's autonomy was completely ended in order to preserve its wildness. And this also says nothing of the extreme shades of eugenics that you get with purity and <laughs> it's it's a real it's real weird <laughs> when you get deep yeah into i it. think it's uh, purity in general is a you know there are very few cases i think when purity is actually a good thing maybe in the manufacture of far- manufacturing of pharmaceuticals i might be into purity um but in most cases i whenever i see anything that smacks of purity my eyebrows go up immediately and one of the other issues that you tackle from an ethical standpoint is captive breeding. Um, And you used the famous example of the California condor. I was actually really surprised to learn that some people objected to the idea of captive breeding of the California condor because they deemed captive condors, not condors. (laughs) They were not as good as, as real condors. Real. So back in the 1980s, when, when there were, you know, just a couple dozen condors left, uh, you know, there was this kind of emergency move to, to capture all of them and put them into a breeding program. But there were people who objected. Now, some of the uh, people objected because they didn't think that humans, uh, th- it was sort of, one objection was based on, oh, it might not work. We, we might screw this up. We don't know how to breed condors. Oh, oh my gosh, like we will end up being their doom. And, and that's a more pragmatic objection. But some of the objections were more philosophical, that if you have a condor in a cage, it's not really a condor, its wildness is gone, its dignity is gone. Um, and that that's unacceptable. It's an unacceptable price to pay to keep the species alive. Yeah, and this was surprising to me, because you also note, and I think it's a really good point, that these are human concerns of dignity and wildness. Nobody asked the condor <laughs> about its dignity and its wildness. <laughs> and I was yeah. actually wondering, how do you think that thinking about condor concerns would have changed how we acted, if it would have changed how we acted, if it should have? In some ways, I think the condor program is a perfect alignment of um, the species' interests and the individual birds' interests. Because in the case of the condor, they were dropping dead of lead poisoning primarily. And that wasn't totally well understood at the time. But it it turned out to be the case that if those individual birds that they took into captivity hadn't been taken into captivity, they probably would have had very short lives after that. So the program not only saved the species, it actually saved those individual birds. So I think if you were the condor, you would probably agree to spend a couple of decades in a flight cage being lovingly cared for um, in order to have a longer life. And many of those initial birds that went into captivity were able to go back out later at the end of their lives. So I think that it would turned out to be a deal that the, that probably most of the condors would have signed up for. They would have accepted that temporary loss of freedom in order to not die. Um, now, not all captive breeding programs are quite that way. Some captive breeding programs, are, in fact, quite a few of them, are asking the animals that are captured to spend the rest of their lives in captivity and maybe the rest of their children's lives in captivity so that their grandchildren or their great-grandchildren can be reintroduced into the wild. 
Um, and so in that case, you have to think, well, is it, if, if I was this animal, would I be willing to make this sacrifice for my kind, I guess? Yeah, and that's not something we can ever truly know. No, exactly. Yeah. I mean, what makes all of this so difficult is that we can't just ask them. <laughs> now, in some cases, there are ways in which animals tell us their preferences. And in my zoo chapter, I talk about animals trying to escape, which to me seems like a pretty pretty clear sign that they are not thrilled to be in captivity. Um, and there are other examples like that. But often, we we have to just use that sort of powers of analogy and imagination to, uh, to try to understand what these animals want. And one of the hardest ethical issues that you take on is around invasive species on islands. Um, and the fact that conservationists out to save species literally kill animals by the millions to save the few. Um, and some of these I find to be slightly ironic. Um, <laughs> I think my personal favorite is that uh, rats killed off a native mouse in the Galapagos. And so we're carpet bombing some islands to get rid of, but we're, so, you know, that, and that's really sad because this poor native mouse is dead. But in other islands, we're actually carpet bombing them to get rid of mice. They're just different mice and they're the wrong mice. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the irony is just, um, and I was wondering how, how do you go about working through the ethics of that, the ethics of, you know, trading many millions of mousy lives for the life of a seabird. This is, as you say, really difficult. And the reason it's so difficult, uh, sort of philosophically, is that the values on each side of this equation are in different currencies, so to speak, right? So on, on, on the one hand, you have the lives of the animals that you're going to kill, on the other hand, you have the lives of the animals that they would have eaten, but you also have the species, which is this sort of abstract category. So you have biodiversity, the value of biodiversity, put up against the sort of welfare and suffering of individual sentient creatures. And those two things are not, you can't just measure them. You can't say like, oh, you know, the number of goats we would have to kill here is 200 and the species is worth 400 goats. So we're okay, or something like that. Like you can't measure the value of a species in individual lives. They're not in the same currency, which means you have to just make a decision. Um, and I don't think that all you don't, it isn't just one single decision. You have to make it over and over again because every case is a little bit different. So in some cases, it might be that the animal, the species that's at risk is extremely, um, extremely rare, but also extremely different from other species. It's very genetically unique, re represents a very unique part of evolution. And in, in another case, maybe it's a seabird that's actually very closely related to a more common seabird. So maybe that changes the equation about whether it's worth killing to save it. Um, it's also how many animals do you have to kill? There's also an ethical difference between an eradication when you go in once and you kill all of the, the non-native mice or the non-native cats or the non-native foxes, whatever the predator is, versus suppression campaigns where you go in every year and you knock back the population over and over again so that the killing never really ends. Um, so there's lots of different pieces to this. And every case, I think, has to get looked at on its own. And it may be that there isn't a right answer here, right? That you cannot use 
the tools of philosophy to prove that it's wrong to kill the predators or that it's wrong to let the species go extinct or vice versa. It may be that you just have to make a choice and then live with it. Yeah. And as you, as you note in the the beginning of the book, you know, it's something that we've, we've all kind of learned in Western society, you know, growing up, going to places like the zoo, you've learned that animals are valuable and they are more valuable because they are rare. Animals that are rare are more valuable. And I, is that true? (laughs) I mean, not everyone thinks so, right? So, so, I mean, some people say, like Tom Reagan, for example, would say, in fact, he does say very clearly in his writing that that beavers are not less valuable than bison because beavers are more common. It, they, that an animal is an animal, a sentient thing is a sentient thing. They all have exactly the same value. There are other people who would say, well, no, the individual animal itself isn't more valuable if it's of a rare species, but separately from the value of these sentient individuals, there is a distinct value that, that attaches to the diversity of life that attaches to the species itself. And so that that's something that you have to balance separately from the welfare and the happiness of the individuals. Um, so it's not, (laughs) I would, I, I don't think that, um, you know, uh, a snow leopard that if you if you have a snow leopard and a house cat and and you say one of them has to die i you know then i think most people would probably say well then let's keep the snow leopard because they're so extremely rare but i don't think that the individual cats have any difference in their moral value right that's what makes it so difficult it's not the same ethical currency yeah. And so you also talk about, you know, speaking of killing things, um, <laughs> you also explore hunting um, and the environmental ethics of hunting. And I was I was really struck that you note that it seems more responsible for your family and friends to go out and hunt themselves rather than outsourcing the growth and slaughter of animals to other people. And I was wondering why you judge that to be more responsible. I think that, you know, in particular... So I guess what I'm trying to say there is that if you buy your, your meat at the grocery store and and you don't inquire too closely into how that animal lived its life and died, um, there's a certain kind of off, you know, you're sort of outsourcing the ethical burden of having to kill and raise that animal to somebody else. You're not kind of taking it on yourself. And I think that that does lead to situations where like sort of some industrial uh, livestock production is probably unethically done where the lives of these animals that are raised for meat are not great. Um, Whereas, you know, in an ideal world and let's an ideal, perfect meat hunting situation, the animal has had a completely autonomous life where it's able to make its own choices and try to find its own bliss. And then one day as it's eating or looking off into the distance, it, instantly and is painlessly killed with a bullet through the heart and then it's eaten. So in that kind of ideal scenario, um, the overall happiness of that animal summed across its entire life is higher than the happiness of an animal that's been in an industrial food operation its whole life. Now there's going to be many people who are going to say, 
well, you still don't have to shoot the animal. You still don't have to eat meat at all. And that's absolutely correct. Um, as I said before, there's no way to have a completely non-ecological existence. Even if you are a vegetarian or a vegan, you know, your, the crops that are grown are going to displace habitat for other creatures. There's almost always some kind of pest control around the crop sites and in food storage areas. Um, and of course you're eating plants that are themselves individuals, um, uh, depending on how you define sentience, you know, it's, it gets very complicated very quickly, but, but I, I, I don't, I don't think that there's any reason not to be a vegetarian or a vegan if you want to be one, but I do argue against criticizing people who have a cultural tradition of meat hunting and who do that. And of course you also talk about how, you know, many indigenous groups, um, you know, and obviously not a monolith, but many indigenous groups in North America in particular look at hunting as a reciprocal practice, um, where animals in a way give themselves to hunters in exchange for ritual practices and for kind of respect. Um, and I mean, I, Western people do not generally live this way. And I was kind of wondering what it would look like if we did. Is that something that could or should scale? It's interesting because, you know, I actually don't write about this in the book, but but the way you phrase that question, I'm not sure that's totally true, although it looks a little different, right? So I think that many Western hunters who hunt for meat, quite a few of them are then part of these organizations like Ducks Unlimited or Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, right? that are in some senses conservation organizations because what they're doing is they're trying to ensure that the, the populations of these game animals are healthy and that there's a lot of them out there to hunt. And so they, they get involved with wetland restoration, habitat preservation, all these things. And these organizations are in a strange way, a kind of a reciprocal practice because um, you know, at the Western hunter gives some money or volunteer hours or whatever to this group that tries to essentially support and make life better for the populations of the game animals. So there is a kind of a reciprocity there. I know. Um, I, I absolutely to- would agree. I, I actually wasn't thinking of people who hunt for meat um, because I, I do think there is, you know, even among Western groups who hunt for meat, there is a lot of respect and a lot of reciprocity. I'm actually thinking of the people who don't hunt and the people who get their meat through industrialized ways. You know, oh, yeah, should okay. should ideas of reciprocity, what would that look like for people who don't hunt or right. should we all do that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, it, yeah, I'd have to think more about that. I mean, you know, I, I don't get into, because the book is about wild animals, quote unquote, I don't get into animal agriculture in a serious way in this book. Uh, obviously, there's overlap there, and and the question of hunting obviously brings up these questions about uh, uh, you know livestock. You know, are there ways to to raise livestock for meat consumption that are sort of ethical? Is a question that I don't answer, and that I don't have answers for you today. Um, but I, I I do know that you know those super cheap chicken breasts at the at the grocery store probably do come with an ethical cost. And you went, you kind of took us through this book on this tour of 
ethical conundrums with wild animals. And I only covered part of them. There are more. Um, And you kind of started this wanting to know whether the massive human impact that we've had on Earth has changed our obligations to the species we share the planet with. And I was wondering what you came up with. What are our obligations now? So yes, I think that the massive human influence on the planet has changed our obligations to what we call wild animals. I think that we can no longer rely on this notion that we can just let nature take its course and that we don't have any obligations to animals that aren't pets or aren't farm animals. That in fact, we need to sort of look around at how our changes to the planet have affected these populations. And we need need in some cases to intervene to try to redress harms. But I think that intervention should be done only after very careful thought, discussion, uh, you know, working with ethicists, professional ethicists would be great because intervention isn't always necessarily the answer. In some cases, I think animals and plants and other species will come up with solutions to problems that human activities have presented on their own. And sometimes these solutions will be stuff that we didn't think of. Um, It'll be sort of a novel approach that we wouldn't have gone to our, we tend to always want to just put things back the way that they were, but there might be solutions, might be situations where we do decide to intervene. And then when we do do that, we have to just do it very carefully with a lot of humility and with an eye towards eventually withdrawing and restoring more autonomy to these individuals that are not human. So I like the idea of, of temporary interventions that we can then, uh, wind down captive breeding programs that are short and not that don't go on for millennia, Uh, maybe supplemental feeding programs that are again short and that we then we address the background problems so that the animals are able to then fend for themselves again. I think that we should intervene strategically and carefully and with as much humility as we can, because even though I don't think wildness exists in the sense of things being untouched by humanity, I do think that the autonomy of individual animals is real and valuable. But you also note that no matter what, these choices don't come without consequences. You know, we will continue to choose things that result in pain and suffering for something. (laughs) You know, there's moral residue here um, is the phrase. And I was wondering if you could talk about what moral residue means and what we should do about it. So moral residue is is the kind of leftover bad that you have to do when you make a choice in some of these dilemma situations. So let's say you have an island where cats are killing a, a rare seabird. Well, you've got two choices. And let's say, you know, uh, let's take off the table some of these more, um, some of these options like genetically modifying the cats to be infertile or whatever. Let's just say that at, you know, it's happening quickly. It's happening right now. It is a very small Island and you either have to kill the cats or let the seabirds die. So in this situation, I don't think that there is a, a a perfectly right answer. I think that either option is going to leave you with some moral residue. If you decide to kill the cats to save the seabirds, you're going to have to live with the fact that you killed those cats. And if you decide to let the cats kill the seabirds, you're going to have to live with the fact that you let those seabirds die. There is no way to get out of this situation without some sort of grief, some sort of guilt, some sort of pain. 
And that's the moral residue, the wrong that you have to do because of the choices you've made. So I actually really love the phrase moral residue. It sounds sticky and gross and unpleasant. (laughs) Which it is. It is sticky and gross and unpleasant. And I think that if we don't like walking around being being encumbered with moral residue, then there are things we can do to to reduce these situ the number of these situations. You know, if we really meaningfully tackle climate change and get us to a stable climate and even draw down to a to a climate that's more like the ones that many of these animals evolved in, we'll have fewer of these dilemma situations. And if we create more space for other species, if we shrink our footprint in both our land and marine footprint and our use of resources so that these other species have more room to sort of sort stuff out on their own, we will again reduce the number of these situations that we are stuck with. So if we don't like moral residue, we should be doing the big things to try to address environmental problems. I've also now decided that, you know how sometimes you're like trying to go to sleep at night and your brain is like, here's every terrible thing that you've done or experienced as a person since you were three. I've decided that that's my moral residue that's keeping me awake now. <laughs> so that's what yes, I'm calling it. And, yeah, and I mean, I think that one... one um, you know, one kind of consequence of thinking about it this way is also building into conservation, not only more sort of explicit ethical inquiry and philosophical conversations before we decide what to do, but maybe also building into it some more healing work and therapy. You know, there are a lot of conservationists out there who kill things for a living and, and, and some of them are so excited about saving species that they sleep really well but I'm sure that others of them could benefit from, you know, having some talking to somebody about it. It's, it's, it's not an easy thing to do. And yeah, I was wondering about that. You know, these, the ethical questions that you tackle are very thorny. You think about them very deeply um, in the book. And I was wondering, have they changed you? Have they changed the way that you approach the world and how you live your day to day life? Yeah, I mean, I would say that, you know, I've made little changes in the process of of writing this book in terms of things like I don't take my kids to the zoo anymore, right? Um, But more deeply, I think that I've just come to accept this fact about the world that you there isn't always a right answer. And this is, doesn't necessarily sit really well with me. Like I want there to be a right answer. I want to be able to build some sort of ethical algorithm. And anytime I have a dilemma about conservation or the environment or the non-human world, I can just crank it through and the right answer will come out the other side. And then I can just do that and I can feel good. Um, and coming to a place of acceptance that that is not the case, that sometimes there is no right answer, that sometimes you just have to do your best and live with the residue was a real shift for me and something that I'm still thinking about in many ways. Well, Emma, thank you so much for coming on the show. This book gave me so much to think about and a lot of moral residue to live with. Well, I hope that it's not too too burdensome. In the end, I hope that thinking about this stuff more carefully will help us make fewer ethical mistakes, if you will. Um, and instead of just falling back on the values we grew up with, I think it's time to think about this stuff afresh and determine what we really value, and then try to go after that. I think we can be better to the non-human world. Well, 
If you'd like to be better and you want to read more about Emma Maris and her new book, Wild Souls, Freedom and Flourishing in the Non-Human World, we've got links on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. While you're there, let us know what you think of the show, maybe. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Twitter, um, if you'd like. We've also got a Patreon page where you can help us produce this podcast with a monthly donation. Every extra cent is appreciated. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. Thank you.